If you like punk rock music, then you probably know the band Me First and the Gimme Gimmies. They're a punk rock cover band, and they cover songs by Elton John and Garth Brooks and Neil Diamond. I mean, who doesn't love Neil Diamond? If you don't love Neil Diamond, I'm pretty sure we can't be friends. And they cover songs by the likes of Johnny Cash and Ario Speedwagon and the Beatles, to name a few. But what you may not know is that they get their name from a children's book by the same name, Me First and the Gimme Gimmies, which is about Me First, this character who is an angry and selfish member of the Gimme Gimmies. The Gimme Gimmies are selfish, and it's not until they almost destroy the entire world and destroy themselves that they finally realize that there has to be a better way to live. And in the story, the character, Me First, learns to become a caring and kind individual who shares things and loves others more than himself. Me First and the Gimme Gimmies is one way to define what the Bible calls Sin. Sin, of course, could be described in many ways. Falling short of God's glory, rebellion against God's commandments, not treasuring Jesus. We saw several months ago the answer to this question with the New City Catechism. Question 16, what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. All of those are ways that we can talk about sin, but I'd like to add me first in the gimme gimmies to that list. What is sin? Me first in the gimme gimmies. Sin causes us to want our way. It turns us into me first. It transfers us to the land of the gimme gimmies. Sin bends or curves us inward so that we are obsessed with ourself, obsessed with our wants, obsessed with our wishes, obsessed with our desires, obsessed with our preferences. And none of you are this way, are you? Callie Capic describes it this way. In the early church, St. Augustine spoke of sin as that which bends or curves us to the ground, making us more like the beast and less like the God whom we were to image. He speculated that we were created to have our heads and hearts raised toward Yahweh and that sin is that which turns our gaze from him. Martin Luther picked up this imagery in the Reformation, arguing that sin actually bends or curves us upon ourselves. Homo incurvatus in se. We were designed to embrace God and others, but instead we are now consumed with ourselves. Luther's protege, Philip Melanchthon, describes sin as the painful reality that the human heart turned in upon itself. Sin makes all of us curve inward, but the gospel makes us move out to love and serve others. Jesus came to set us free from me first in the gimme gimmies. 
And that's the good news of the gospel that we'll see in Mark chapter 10 today. So turn to Mark chapter 10 if you haven't already. The good news of the gospel that we'll see in Mark today is that Jesus came to set you and me free from the gimme gimme's. Jesus came to set you and me free from sin, to set us free from the coming wrath of God, to set us free from our slavery to sin and self, to set us free from our love affair with ourselves, to set us free from living for our own little kingdoms of self, to set us free to serve others in love. Jesus came to set you and me free from the gimme gimmies. Look at verse 32 in Mark chapter 10 and hear the word of the Lord. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So this is now the fourth time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has told the disciples that he came to suffer and die. This was his mission, to give his life as a ransom for many. And what we'll see in this episode today as we binge watch Jesus is that discipleship involves following Jesus to his death. Here we see that the crowds were following Jesus, and Mark tells us that they were amazed and that they were afraid. And so I believe what's happening is that Jesus has been speaking to them about his impending death as they walk along the road towards Jerusalem. And so people are amazed that Jesus is walking with determination to his death. And they're afraid because they're beginning to see that to follow Jesus means that you have to follow him to his death. But then Jesus pulls the 12 disciples aside and he gives them more details on his death. He tells them that he will be delivered over to the religious authorities and they will condemn him to death. And then they will hand him over to the Gentile rulers who will mock him and spit on him and beat him and whip him and then ultimately kill him. And then Jesus says, three days later, he will come back from the dead. Now, notice what Jesus has just said. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on, I'm going to be beat up, I'm going to be whipped, I'm going to be put to death, and then I'll come back from the dead three days later. And what do the disciples fixate on? Do they hold Jesus' hand and try to comfort him? Do they try to stop him from traveling to Jerusalem and instead offer going on a cruise? Because that would be a lot better. Avoid death? Go on a cruise? Go to Jerusalem and die? Do they beg him not to follow through with his plan? No. They want to talk about who gets the best seat in the eternal kingdom. They want to be in the inner circle in heaven. They want the best seats in the house. They want to talk about seating arrangements in heaven. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. 
And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. This is actually a repeat episode of what we have already seen in Mark's gospel back in chapter 9. Jesus explains his mission. He explains his suffering. He explains the gospel to them, that he's going to die for them. And then the disciples start fighting and clamoring about which one of them is numero uno. They totally bypass his comments on suffering, his comments on the cross, and they go straight to glory. Actually, it's just James and John at this point who do, the, who do this, but the rest of the disciples will get upset about this later in the verse, in the passage. They'll actually be mad that they didn't think to ask Jesus this question first. But this whole scene with the disciples is an adventure in missing the point. They have missed the point that Jesus came to suffer, that in the kingdom of God, suffering precedes glory. They want to go straight to glory. They want to pass go and collect $200. They don't want to suffer. They're more concerned with glory, with who gets the best seats in the kingdom. So they go straight to Jesus and they tell him, we want you to do for us what we want. Give us what we want. Of course, we never do this, do we? We never want Jesus to give us whatever we ask him for, do we? And we never throw temper tantrums with Jesus when we don't get our way, do we? Y'all are some good people. Y'all probably don't do this, do you? Y'all probably never tell Jesus to give you what you want, and y'all probably never throw temper tantrums when he doesn't. But me, I do it all the time. I've been known to throw some pretty big temper tantrums in my heart when Jesus does not give me what I want. It's strange. Doesn't Jesus know how great my ideas for my life are? Doesn't Jesus know how I'm oozing with wisdom and he should take my advice every once in a while? Doesn't Jesus know that I have a pretty good idea about what is best for me? Doesn't Jesus lovingly put up with people like us who think they know better than him? Jesus is very merciful. We see that here in Mark chapter 10. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He will actually listen to us even when we whine and even when we want our way. How amazing. What a merciful Savior he is. And he does that here with James and John. They are we first in the gimme gimmies, and yet Jesus is merciful. I love that about Jesus. I love that he entertains their question. They tell him, do whatever we ask of you. Give us a blank check. And Jesus goes right along with their idea, and he asks them, what do you want me to do for you? And they reply, give us the best seats in your kingdom. Let us sit on the right and left sides of your throne. This is like the very first documented occurrence of someone yelling, shotgun, in order to ride in the first seat, front seat. James and John have just shouted in unison, shotgun, and it was a tie. But notice that Jesus does not condemn them for their request. Jesus doesn't condemn them for what they're asking for. He doesn't wag his finger at them. He doesn't shake his head in disgust. He doesn't throw his arms up in the air. 
Yes, Jesus will correct them, but he does not condemn them. The other disciples, they will point fingers at James and John, but not Jesus. He patiently listens to their very selfish request, but he does not shame them for it. Commenting on this scene, Chad Bird says, To their request that day, Jesus replied that they had no idea what they were asking. And in that, James, John, and all of us are stuck in the same boat. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We're like five-year-olds begging for Oreo cookies and ice cream at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We want what is sweet. We want comfortable lives, happy families, secure jobs. We want our sports teams to win, to get a close parking spot at Walmart, just enough sunshine and just enough rain. And if it's not asking too much, we wouldn't mind a little more money, a nicer car, college degrees for our kids, and smiles on the faces of our grandchildren. Although we might not voice prayers for such things, if our hearts spoke to heaven, these are some of the things they would say. And, hear me well, there is nothing wrong with desiring and praying for these things, for they are well and good in and of themselves. James and John may have been told no, but they weren't chided for making their request. Bold and audacious though it was, it was indeed a prayer of faith. They may not have known what to ask for, but they knew who to ask. And that's what matters. Knowing exactly what God wants us to ask for isn't what matters. What matters is that we ask Him. What matters is that we know that God invites us to believe that He is our true Father and that we are His true children so that boldly and confidently we may ask Him as children ask their Father even if that request is for Oreos and ice cream for breakfast. Now all of us at many times have sent rather silly and selfish prayers up to God. I did it yesterday. And as I reflect on it, I think the prayer was probably about 98% about me and my kingdom and about 2% concerned with the kingdom of God. But I asked God anyway, and I told Heather, I know he can answer, I just don't know he will. But I went ahead and asked. All of us at many times have sent rather silly and selfish prayers up to God. And while there are things that we know are God's will, and we should be asking for these things, there are things that we know are God's will and we should be asking for. There are times when our prayers, though, lean a little bit to the selfish side. And that's okay. What matters is that we are praying to God. That we are pouring our hearts out to our Heavenly Father, even if we're asking for Oreos and ice cream for breakfast. Nevertheless, James and John do show us here that it's just really, 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 really easy for our worship and our service and our discipleship to get blended with self-interest. It's just so easy for our worship to get blended together with self-interest. Or even worse, self-interest gets masked as worship, service, and discipleship. Self-interest can masquerade as serving. Self-interest can masquerade even as worship, which is why we must deal radically with it. 
We can do things serving God, but we do it because we want to be seen, because we want to be loved, because we want people to stroke our ego. And we say things like, no, really, it's okay. It was my pleasure. Keep it coming. It was my pleasure. No, really, stop. Self-interest can masquerade as serving. Self-interest can masquerade even as worship, which is why we must deal radically with it. Jack Miller said this, the kingdom of Satan is a self-centered kingdom. This means that in order to combat it, we must deal radically with self-love in ourselves first before the kingdom of God can begin to touch others. The hardest sin to recognize and repent of is the sin of being self-centered. The kingdom of self is always raging in you and in the people around you. So praying for success is really struggling against evil, against an unholy kingdom, a kingdom of wrath, fear, and lust. The hardest sin to recognize and repent of is the sin of being self-centered. We just don't see it because we're so consumed with ourselves, because we're so in love with ourselves, and everybody else can see it. It's as clear as day to everybody else but we're actually blind to it. To put it in Romans 7 language, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self are at war with one another inside of each and every one of us. When we want to do right, evil is right there. But we must not misunderstand this truth. Our desires for greatness will inevitably wreck and ruin the communities that we're involved in. It's family, whether it's church, work, your neighborhood. Our desires to be first, our desires to get our way, our desires to be recognized and to be loved by other people, to be known, our desires to let our kingdom come and our will be done will inevitably ruin our relationships. We see that here. James and John wanted to get their way and it immediately affected the rest of the disciples. Immediately there was a reaction by the 10 other disciples to the request of James and John. Our desires for greatness and our desires to get our way will inevitably wreck and ruin the communities that we are involved in. And I think James learned that truth here. If this James was the James that wrote the book of James in the New Testament, and we're not sure which James authored it, but if it's this James, listen to what he says about selfish ambition and clamoring to be number one from his epistle. Because James has been there and done that. He knows the damage that can be done in a church community when people try to make everything about them. When there is jealousy deep within our hearts. In fact, James says it's demonic. James 3, verses 14 through 18. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So many years after he cried, shotgun, James writes that when he cried, shotgun, it was demonic. 
It was anti-Christ, he says. James has learned firsthand that when there is jealousy and selfish ambition in any group of people, a church, a family, a workplace, a neighborhood, a city, when there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and all kinds of trouble. When there is jealousy and selfish ambition, it inevitably turns that place into the land of the gimme gimmies. As I was working on this sermon, I was struck by something else that Jack Miller said. He said, over the years, I've learned a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people confess their sins, but I can only remember a couple people who confess the sin of jealousy. Huh, think about that for a second. Have you ever confessed the sin of jealousy? I'm sure you've been jealous before. I have and can be. Have you ever confessed the sin of jealousy? You might be jealous of someone right now, even in this church. Confess that sin today and find freedom. Don't live in those chains that that, that bind you and trap you. Confess that sin today and find the freedom that Jesus offers you. Put selfish ambition to death. Listen, we all want our way, don't we? We all like to hear ourselves talk, don't we? This is what sin does to us. It curves us inward. Now, you might not want to become the next celebrity pastor, but do you always have to give the answer or give your opinion about something? When you're in a Bible study or in a Sunday school class or in a small group, do you always have to chime in? Could you actually just sit there and let other people talk? for once? Or do you always have to speak up, always provide your opinion, always give your thoughts? Has all of your Bible reading, all of your praying, all of your spiritual growth really just been about you? Is it really just about you? Is your Christian life really just about you? There's a better way, and it's way more freeing. Not living for yourself is so freeing. Living to glorify and enjoy God and to be a blessing to others is so freeing. Forgiving others is so freeing. Letting God's love cover a multitude of sins is so freeing. This is God's law that's exposed all of us as selfish sinners who are in love with themselves. That's what God's law does. It exposes our sin. But the hope of the gospel is that we are loved and forgiven by Jesus and all of our selfishness is not our identity. So let me ask you today, do you want to be free today? Do you want to be free? Walk in freedom, not be bound by chains of jealousy, not be bound by chains of resentment and bitterment. Do you want to be free? Then look to Jesus. Just look to Jesus because he loves you. This is the remarkable thing about the gospel. Jesus loves self-absorbed you. We don't love self-absorbed you, in case you didn't know that. But Jesus loves self-absorbed you. People who know me don't love self-absorbed me. But Jesus loves self-absorbed me. He loves self-absorbed you and he wants to set you free so that you can spread his love to others. Jesus came to set you and me free from the gimme gimmies. 
Jesus came to set you free from sin, from its power, to be enslaved by it. Jesus came to set you free from being in love with yourself to set you free from living for your own little kingdom where you're either the king or the queen of your own little kingdom. Jesus came to set you free to love and serve other people in his kingdom for their joy and for God's glory. And so the gospel actually frees you to see all the ugly parts of your heart, all the ways that you live for you, all the ways that you live for your glory, all the ways that you want your way all the ways that you are in love with you. The gospel frees you to see all the ugly parts of your heart and not run away in fear and shame. The gospel frees you to kind of rip open your heart and take a peek inside and see all that's ugly on the inside and not run away in fear and shame. But Jesus will correct you, yes, But Jesus will never condemn you. He'll never condemn you for what's in your heart. He'll correct you, but he'll never condemn you. Because of Jesus, you can face what is inside your heart. You can face your sin and not be left with shame and guilt. Rather, you can see all of the ugliness that's on the inside, and you can run to Jesus because you know that he has made you clean. If you're a Christian, he has washed you. He has clothed you with his righteousness. You can run to Jesus when you see what's on the inside of your heart because he has justified you and he has declared you righteous. See, the gospel actually frees us to admit that sometimes we wear masks. Sometimes we try to hide what is really in our hearts. Sometimes we wear these masks to try to cover who we really are. We don't want people to know who we really are. Because it's embarrassing, isn't it? It's embarrassing how I really am. Steve Brown said, The masks we wear bind us to a role that kills the very freedom that Jesus died to give us. The masks that we wear actually bind us and lock us up in in chains into this, this role that we were never designed to play. And it kills the very freedom that Jesus died to give us. By not owning up to what is inside our hearts, what do we do? We try to cover it up. We bury it. We wear masks so that people don't see how we really are. And that enslaves us and chains us to a role that we were never meant to play. And when we wear these masks and we begin to buy our own PR, we begin to buy our own publicity, when we, like the Pharisees, wear these masks of self-righteousness, it actually chains us up in a prison. And Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came to set us free from that bondage. That's no way to live the rest of your life, is it? And Jesus will reply to the request of James and John, and he will tell them about the freedom that he offers. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, 
but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus shows us here that the way of the kingdom of God is upside down, that it's backwards. You actually win by losing. You live by dying. And here Jesus is telling the disciples that to be great in God's kingdom, you have to become a servant. You have to become a slave. In other words, you have to give up your rights. You have to give up all of your rights. You have to die to your wants. You have to die to your wishes. You have to descend down into death. To follow Jesus as a disciple, you have to die. And it's painful. Dying to self is painful. It's painful, isn't it? It's painful giving up your rights. It's painful giving up the last donut when you really want it, and you're like, go ahead and take it. It's painful. That's, just, that's how practical it is and how deep-seated our selfishness is. That sometimes when there's one donut left and there's two people and there's a showdown, you want to go to the Old West and you're like, let's go 10 paces and turn. Maybe you're not that selfish and maybe don't love donuts as much as I do. But if it's down to one donut and me and one other person, I'm like, hey, look over there. <laughs> Dying to self is painful. Getting your kingdom of self overthrown by Jesus is painful. As disciples, you have to enter into Jesus' death. You have to enter that darkness. But the good news is that you emerge in resurrection. You emerge in resurrection life. You live by dying. And this goes against everything in our world. The world says you need to fight for first place Push people out of the way to get to the top. Look out for number one. The world says rule and exercise power and control over others. That's what Jesus is saying. You know the Gentile rulers, how they do this. But Jesus says that's not the way of the kingdom. That's not the way of Jesus. When Jesus speaks of his impending suffering and death, the disciples go straight to wanting to talk about seating arrangements in the kingdom. They move away from all this cross-talk as quickly as they can. I mean, who wants to talk about dying to self? Who wants to talk about dying to self? No way. Write a book about how I can help other people die to self. I don't want to die to self. Who wants to talk about dying to self? The disciples want to talk about more cheerful, upbeat things, positive things like seat reservations. So they say, Jesus, come on now. Why be so dark? Why be so negative, Jesus? Let's look on the bright side. Let's talk about life on the other side of the cross. Let's talk about what it'll be like when this is all over, when it's all said and done. Enough of this depressing stuff, Jesus. But Jesus will have none of it. He asked them if they think they can drink the cup that's waiting for him and be baptized into the baptism that awaits him as well. And how do they reply? We're able. Sure, we can do it. We got this, Jesus. Bring it on. And then Jesus says, well, you are going to have to drink the cup and undergo this baptism. 
you will follow me down into the darkness of my cross and resurrection. That's what I want to talk about. That's why I came. I'm not interested in who gets what seed and who sits where. And then the other ten disciples get upset because James and John beat them to the punch. So they say, crud, why didn't I think to ask Jesus for the best seat? There were two empty seats for the taking and I didn't call shotgun. Wasn't fast enough, I'm so stupid. And so while they're all arguing about all this, Jesus tells them that he has called them to true greatness. And true greatness is not about who sits where or what position you are on the team. True greatness is all about being a servant. That's why Jesus came to serve and die. His very mission is the thing that we're allergic against. We're allergic to serving and dying. And Jesus says, this is my whole mission. Jesus wants us to bend our definition of greatness to the one that he describes here. Who is great? The one who serves. Servants are great because they spend their days faithfully doing menial, overlooked tasks over long periods, often without notice, without praise, without recognition. The 12 disciples understand they were among the inner circle with Jesus And still that wasn't enough. And Peter, James, and John were in the top three of the inner circle. But that still wasn't enough for James and John. They wanted to be in the top two. They were close to Jesus in the inner circle, but they were not content. They wanted better seats. But Jesus will not let these guys distract him from his mission. He wants to talk about suffering, not seating. He wants to talk about serving, not being served. Jesus is preoccupied with death. He will not let the disciples distract him from focusing on his suffering. Jesus came not to be served, Mark tells us, but to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die. And the disciples do not realize what they're asking. In order to get the glory, suffering comes first. And Jesus shows us that by speaking of the cup and baptism in verse 38. The cup in the Old Testament is a picture of God's just judgment against sin and against evil. So Jesus is saying that he will drink the cup of God's wrath against man's sin on the cross. He will be baptized into death. All of this precedes his glory. So when James and John request the best seats in the coming kingdom, Jesus tells them that the moment of his greatest glory will be when he drinks the cup and is baptized into death. On the cross. His suffering is his glory. The cross is his glory. And on the cross, Jesus will have two men on his left and right, two criminals. The disciples have no clue what they're asking of Jesus. To follow Jesus, you must follow him to the cross. And then Jesus tells them that they will suffer for following him. They will drink the cup and be baptized into his suffering. Jesus came to die on the cross. This was his mission. He came to buy us out of the slave market of sin. That's what the word ransom means here in verse 45. It was a word that was used of the price that was paid to purchase a slave at the slave market to ransom someone, to buy someone, to purchase the freedom of a slave. Because of Jesus, we are set free from slavery to sin. 
set free from slavery to self. And now we are free to be servants of God and servants of others. Freed slaves who become slaves of God who freely serve others. That's discipleship. Freed slaves who become slaves of God who freely serve others for their joy and God's glory. This is what Paul means in Galatians 5, 6 when Paul says, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Faith and trust, our faith and trust in Jesus and his work and what he has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. The only thing that matters is our faith and trust in his work then empowering us and finding expression in love to others. Paul says that's the only thing that matters. Our faith finding expression in love. He says in Ephesians 2.10 that we were created for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what we're set free to do, to love and serve others, to walk in these good works. The whole reason God sent his son was so that he would be glorified as he liberates slaves like us from the slave market of sin. That's why Jesus came to undo those chains and say, come with me. He came for our sake. He came to set us free so that we could love God and love others. He came to set us free so that we could serve others. He came to set us free so that we would run to God and not from him. Christian, the one who bought you out of the slave market of sin, he wants you. He loves self-absorbed you. He wants you and he wants you to run to him when you see all the ugliness in your heart. He wants you to do what a little slave girl once did. I've read this story in several books and I'm not sure if it really happened, but it supposedly took place during the Civil War days before America's slaves were freed And it's about a northerner who went to a slave auction and purchased a young slave girl. As they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the little girl and told her, you're free. With amazement, she responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I want to say? Yes, anything. And to be whatever I want to be? Yep, And even go wherever I want to go? Yes, he answered with a smile. You're free to go wherever you'd like. And she looked at him intently and replied, Then I will go with you. That's what grace does. That's the gospel. Christ transforming redemptive love makes us want to walk with him and not be in the chains of self. It frees you to go with Jesus. Jesus came to set you and me free from the gimme gimmies. He came to the slave market. Jesus came to the slave market because we could not go to him. We were in chains on the block, the auction block, totally unable to free ourselves. Jesus came to the slave market because we could not go to him. And he came to purchase us with his blood. He came not to strip away our freedom, to strip away our slavery to sin and self so that we could really and truly be free. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom on the cross for your sin and for mine, to buy you out of the slave market of sin. If you're a Christian, he has purchased you out of the slave market 
of sin, and you are free. He came to forgive you. If you're a Christian, he has forgiven you. You are forgiven. All of your self-absorbed life that you lived up to this moment in the sermon is forgiven. It's not your identity. He came to cleanse you. Christian, you are clean. That sense of, I just feel dirty all the time, not true. It's not true. That feeling is not true. Christian, you are clean. You have been washed. He came to adopt you into his forever family, and now you are his child. He came to love you with his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And Christian, he loves you with that love. He loves you. He sees self-absorbed you. And instead of running away in disgust, he loves you with his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Maybe you're here today and this is the first time that you're hearing about Jesus. The first time that you're hearing that there is a God who loves you like this. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself right now, I always knew there must be a God like this somewhere. Well, there is. His name is Jesus. Or maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I don't believe this stuff is true. Let me ask you, but don't you wish you did? You may not believe that this stuff is true, but don't you wish you did? Don't you wish you believed in a God who loves like this? You can. All you got to do is open the empty hands of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the two words that are in your word, law and gospel. We thank you for how your law works to expose our sin. It's painful. It's painful to be told from your word how self-absorbed we are. But the law must do its work. And we thank you for the gospel, the good news, Father, that Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf, died a perfect death on our behalf, and you raised him from the dead and he's coming again. And we thank you for that good news, Father. Thank you that we are cleansed. Those who are trusting in Jesus' work, we are cleansed, we are forgiven, we've been declared righteous. We are your children and you are our Father. Transform us and make us a church that isn't like the land of the gimme gimmies, but make us a church who serves like your son served us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.